Hello, Michael. Andre, are we doing some sort of uh, commercial here? Yes, we are. Have you been to blindersgame.com? <laughs> I absolutely love your um, your radio voice. I have, <laughs> I have not, but you have told me a lot about this. So blindersgame.com is a card game that's been uh, created by the same company that made those really entertaining Psalm movies. I think you can see them on uh, Netflix and a couple of other places online. But what they've done is they've created a card game where the point of the game is to blind taste through some wines and build a hand to kind of help guide you to, you know, getting some better descriptors of how to blindly taste wine. So you won't sound like an idiot like when you and I do Stump the Chump. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you and I are going to try and play this game uh, sometime (laughs) before the pandemic is over. We were planning on getting together to play the game, but just with Toronto rolling back to Phase 2, just not a good idea. But if you go to the website, blindersgame.com, and you use the promo code 2GTW, that's the number 2GTW, you'll get 20% off any of those games, any of those card games, and it's um, something that'll make a great Christmas gift. All right. Uh, I'll I'll check it out, and and I understand that... um... You're going to try it with your friends, and I'm going to try it with mine, and we'll see what happens. 2GTW. You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. <laughs> hey, Michael. Andre. It's, it's, uh, we're talking to each other two days in a row, but the funny thing is, this podcast is going to be re- released before the one we did yesterday. Correct, because you've got a lot of editing to do on the one we did yesterday. So, you know, just to, to tease ahead to what we did, uh, we recorded a socially distanced podcast on my patio in two-degree weather. Pardon me? In, of a card game. Yeah, we played a card game. We were on my patio for two hours in the dark, candle lit with um, a safety log burning in my barbecue. It was it was cozy, but, you know, just a reminder to everyone listening to the podcast that... Uh, COVID hasn't gone away, and uh, we're still doing our best to set a good example and following the rules, which would be the first time Michael has set a good example doing anything. That's, that is correct. I would not uh, I would not argue with that in any way, shape, or form. But, so what are we doing today? Today, uh, I, I was, I was uh, thrilled to get a chance to speak to uh, a guy named Nigel Westblade. God, I love that name. That's I wish, such a great I wish name. I had a cool name like Westblade. I know. Your, uh, your last name is Pincus, and yeah. mine, mine is with a silent L and X, so it's any variation of Prolex or Prolx or Prooks. Yeah, which, is a, which is a good name for a watch, I think. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we, we got a chance to speak to the chief winemaker of Peter Lehman in the Barossa. In the Barossa, uh, where it was nine in the morning, um, uh, he's the chief winemaker of Peter Lehman. So uh, let's roll that tape. So we're here with uh, Nigel Westblade of uh, Peter Lehman Wines. And uh, Nigel, I have the first question. How does one get the cool name of Westblade? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's, um, that's actually an anglicized version. Uh, my family is originally from uh, Sweden. So it's an anglicized version of uh, Westblad. So that's how I ended up with Westblade. So, <laughs> middle name Lars. And so, yeah. No, we're good. Uh, so this Swedish sounds like you should be uh, a, a, a superhero of some sort. So, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, no, no. 
So as I said, we're uh, we're we're going to be tasting some uh, Barossa wines. We're here with N- Nigel Westblade, and of course, my co-host Andre is here. Hello, uh, Nigel is actually in Australia. As Andre uh, earlier, I don't know if we were running <laughs> tape yet. Andre asked him, and the uh, the question was, "Can you travel anywhere, Nigel, or have you traveled anywhere?" No, they've um, locked us up pretty tight this year. Uh, the borders domestically are opening up now, so. I think uh, as a Australia as a country's done reasonably well, and so you're seeing all the the borders opening up again now. So South Australia, where the Barossa is, we haven't had a, a community transition uh, transmission now for probably three or four months. So. Oh wow! Well, I guess maybe maybe one of the first questions we can we can uh, kick off with then, is since we've gone down the COVID route already, is um, in the spring when everything sort of locked down in, in mid March. There, uh, did that affect? the like did that affect the harvest the quality of the harvest like were any was any fruit left to languish like how how did um the COVID affect the operations of the winery yeah no that was a, a pretty stressful time when it happened because we did have a, a couple of uh, active cases actually in the barossa uh probably just up the road probably well, two or three kilometers up the road we had some active cases but i guess as a team we sort of got together and we, we pulled through it and we actually separated out the winery so we split the winemaking team in half, we split the cellar in half, we split everything in half, and we basically worked as uh, two, two different teams. So we never actually uh, crossed paths with each other. And, uh, and then we had uh, Jade, who's a, a bit of culturalist. She always, also has a winemaking degree, so she was our uh, third backup plan. So <laughs> apart from uh, not seeing uh, face-to-face my winemaking team for probably four to six weeks there, uh, we managed to get through it with a few controls and everything came in as it should be. Obviously, we had a lot of planning there, what would happen if um, yeah, the borders shut or water, uh, the wineries were forced, forced to shut. But fortunately, the, um, the health department here was pretty good. They got on top of it very quickly and uh, we managed to uh, get through vintage uh, relatively unscathed. So let's let's talk Peter Lehman. Uh, can you give us a little bit of history of, of the winery? Sure. I guess uh, we'll go back to probably uh, late seventies. Uh, Peter Lehman himself was a, a winery manager at a, a large corporate winery in the Barossa, and uh, I guess unfortunately at that stage uh, Barossa was in a severe oversupply. So um, corporate pulled Peter into the office and basically said, Peter, you've you've got enough wine in the tanks. You're going to go out and tell all your growers uh, we're not picking any fruit this year. We've got enough wine in the tanks and uh, they're just going to have to suck it up and have no income for the year. So at that stage, you're talking around 130, 140 growers. Uh, the majority of those, that was their either their primary or their only source of income for the year. So that would have been... Uh, financially uh, devastating for this 150-odd families. Uh, Peter slept on that. He just decided, I just I just can't do I just can't go out and tell these guys that uh, they're making no money. We don't want their fruit. So uh, Peter and a few friends, they managed to get together and they um, begged, borrow and stole. And they did steal a, a little bit of gear, but it's all been forgiven now. And they managed to hold together a winery and uh, all that fruit came in. Now, at that time, Peter had remortgaged his house, um, he had no money left. So he said, had to go to the growers. And this is before they picked the fruit, obviously. He goes, look, this is what I've done. I've spent all my money. I've, I've got all my skin in the game. But I just I can't afford to, to buy the fruit. I, I can't pay you for the fruit at the moment. 
But what we'll do, we'll make the, we'll turn the fruit into wine, and uh, we'll sell the wine on the bulk market. We'll pay you guys first, and if there's any money left over, um, I'll I'll take I'll get paid at the end. So uh, they'll ne- they were never really quite sure how many growers were going to deliver. In the end, all of them delivered, and that was the, the start of Peter Lehman Peter Lehman Wine. So and still today, we have over a hundred growers. And I think for me, one of the best things, which I love that story, I think it's one of the best stories in the wine industry. And even to this day, everything is done on handshake agreements. So we're probably, with our 100 growers, we've probably got two or three on contracts and the rest is uh, all done on handshake agreements the way it was originally done back in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. And when did you take over uh, winemaking? Sure, I've been with uh, the company now uh, probably 12 years off and on and now uh, taken on the chief winemaking role in 2017. So, uh, yeah, a little, a little while now. So I was just starting to hit my groove. It's been, a, it's been a fantastic journey. So is it time to get into the, um, the first wine that we have to taste and get right into it? Sure. So uh, the first wine we're tasting today is uh, the Peter Lehman Portrait Shiraz, and this is uh, 2017, so my uh, first vintage as chief winemaker. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background on the vintage. This is probably coming into one of the wettest springs uh, Barossa had in the last 10 years, so we had really good uh, canopy growth, and we had we set a, managed to set ourselves up with a, a pretty uh, solid, solid growing season. So luckily enough, probably from about... Uh, once we got into the summer and into into the fall or autumn, uh, the rain went away and we had a really nice long uh, ripening season. So, and I think you can sort of see that in the wine. Uh, we call it the Portrait Shiraz because, as I said earlier, we have the 130 odd uh, growing families, and they're from the length and the breadth of the Barossa Valley, so right in the south from Lindock, all all the way up and into Eden Valley. So, this is a blend from all the different subregions of the Barossa, and we like to think it creates a a portrait of uh, the overall quality of the vintage in the Barossa Valley. So it's uh, for people listening. This is a general list wine at the LCBO for 1995. Yeah. So this wine, um, it's all 100% spends time in a oak barrel. So in Australia, uh, we use hogs. So they're 300 liter, 300 liter casts, and. We use quite a traditional uh, toast on this wine, so predominantly American oak and some older French oak. But I guess, uh, yeah, with the wine making, it's that traditional uh, American oak toast that uh, gives it a sort of a house house flavour, if you like. Nice, soft, generous. We really focus on getting that tannin structure uh, right at Peter Lehman, just so it's a, a really nice, nice drink. Well, that's that's interesting. So, is are the three hundred liter barrels like? I think that. That's not really a size that we see too often in the wine industry, unless I'm I'm completely wrong. Is that is that common in Australia to use 300 liters? Because it's usually the yeah, so I guess uh, the 300 liter hogs is yes, yeah, pretty much very common in Australia, and you do see I think South Africa also use them a little bit, but no, the rest of the probably the wine industry is yeah, using those standard uh, breaks, either the 225 or 228 liter or obviously punches and things like that. So, but no, 300 litre does seem to be a little bit uniquely Australian. Wow, I, I know this is like going to be like, I, I guess another super nerdy question, but is it the the French that are making the barrels to that spec for you or or what, like where do the barrels come from? Yeah, sure. So, no, all the French coopers, they all make in 300, I guess, because the, the Australian, we are a reasonably significant market, I guess, for coopers. So, no, it's pretty straightforward. They'll cooper them up 
into 300 litres uh, in French. So we generally, just to get the full nerd on, we generally don't um, season wood in Australia because uh, the rainfall's probably a little bit low for us to get the results we like. So the majority of the barrels, they come to us um, yeah, made in France or America or things like that, or at least seasoned <laughs> in those countries. That's a, that's a pretty juicy wine there, uh, there, Nigel. Uh, you know, lots of nice uh, blackberry and cassis notes. Uh, you get the vanilla and the pepper, which obviously uh, is a characteristic of the Shiraz. Um, yeah, it's a, a quite a pleasant, uh, pleasant, easy drinking twenty dollars bottle here. And oh, it's got a it's got a nice plush texture. But I think one of the things I love about this wine is just some of the non fruity sort of sweet notes. Like I'm getting cocoa on the mid palate, but I'm not getting the texture of it, like it's just very silky, you know, cher- chocolate cherry on the mid palate as it rolls off the back of the tongue. This is, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying this. Yeah, great. So, uh, it's, it's pleasing that you sort of pick that up without even me sort of hinting at that because um, as a team and right from the, the growers all the way through to winemaking, we really focus on getting that, that silky silky texture uh, really across the range. Yeah, so that's that's really pleasing, that comment. No, it's it's kind of it's kind of cool because a wine like this, like at twenty dollars, um, I've been spending a little bit of time just sort of investigating, you know, how to build a wine cellar because you know I've been writing about wine for ten years now, so obviously have more than a few bottles kicking around. Michael has over two thousand sitting in his cellar. Wines like this are, are sort of the fun ones that you can pick up to kind of start the start a collection. Um, I mean, it's not something that you necessarily would want to sit down and, and cellar for you know decades and decades but it's the best part about that texture is you can open it now immediately without having to worry about you know fussy tannins or anything that that's difficult from the onset but in two three years it's definitely something that will evolve with a bit of time in the cellar like, michael i could picture this fitting in your cellar nicely i, I think it's a, a wonderful wine for the cellar and, and i i don't know i could still see it as a decade i I like that it's under screw cap. Yes. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of screw cap. I think they age extremely well under that. Um, you know, since we have Nigel and uh, Australia is is getting to the point where they're predominantly screw cap, uh, Nigel, maybe you want to talk to us about, um, you know, is, is Peter Lehman totally under screw cap? And, and I, I guess why? I've always wanted to ask somebody just why they go with screw cap. Yeah, no, that's a, a really interesting question. I guess um, the Australian market probably, and Peter Lehman Wines, so we're probably 99% screw cut across our range. And I guess uh, we can't get past, we've tried to work um, you know, with different closures, but you know, you're looking at a failure rate, you know, even on good quality cork of 2 3%. And even then, there's that grey area where some wines are sort of Cork, they're affected by the closure, but technically not faulty. We just we can't go past the consistency of the screw cap gives you, and um, the technology on them now is very good. They have a very controlled oxygen tra- OTR or oxygen transfer rate, so I'm very confident now. If I open up a screw cap, if it's one year old or ten years old, I know I know exactly what it's going to taste like, uh, and the bottle next to it will taste very similar to that bottle where. We go back and we do verticals all the time and sometimes you get a wine that's amazing under cork and obviously sometimes you get wines that's undrinkable. So I guess we really want the the consumer to hit the wine, uh, to taste the wine exactly how we intended it and we just haven't found a better closure than screw cap to do that. And we, we internally check ourselves all the time and consistently 
with those wines that have been aged, screw cap um, comes up every time. So we're really confident in the the quality we're getting with the screw cap. I, I am cheating a little bit where I took a look. I'm, I'm on the Peter Lehman website right now, but you have, uh, I guess it's your your, your top tier uh, Masterson. Is that looks yeah, like so that to be the only? So there's a uh, thousand bottles a year, and yeah. that's. That's really, uh, we've obviously used the best cork we can find there on that one and all hand select and each checked by the winemaker. And that's predominantly, uh, a lot of that wine ends up in the Chinese market and they're probably, uh, they've been the most resistant uh, mm-hmm. to, to screw cap. But uh, winemakers would love to get and you'll see subsequent vintages under screw cap of that wine. Because if you want a, a wine like that that's uh, built to go down 20, 30 years, uh, screw, screw caps uh, the way to go, definitely. Fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we see a lot of uh, Barossa Valley wines. We, we've uh, heard a lot about the Barossa Valley, or, or at least, um, you know, we see a lot of it on our shelves. Uh, and it really, uh, the Barossa is the region that is probably the most famous for uh, wine drinkers, what makes the Bar- Barossa Valley so spe- so special that, that that it kind of led the Australian charge onto uh, onto uh, at least our market? Sure, I guess um, I'm relatively new. You're not really a local in the Barossa until you're uh, probably fifth generation Barossa, so <laughs> first generation. So I'm a blow in, but I guess uh, for me coming into the Barossa, it's the, the competitive advantage the Barossa has is that, that we have here are amazing. They really focus in on quality. And to, to be honest, they treat their vineyards uh, quite brutally. Like they're very, you know, those, those vines are working hard. And that and you see you see that hard work end up in the glass, you know. I like to say I'm a winemaker and I, I make the magic happen, but definitely with the Barossa, the, the magic happens out in the vineyard. The, the, the growers we have and the access to the fruit we have is, uh, uh, is quite amazing and it's a real uh, advantage for us. And you just don't see them pushing pushing the absolute limit in, in other regions like they do in the Barossa. It's, it's quite astounding, really. So I think it's time that we can move on to the next wine, Michael. Yeah, that would be the uh, Barossan Shiraz, and uh, maybe uh, Nigel can tell us a little bit about it while we uh, while we taste it. Sure. So I guess uh, with the the portrait Shiraz, that's a, a very uh, traditional style of Barossa Shiraz. Uh, with the change in winemaking too, we're sort of uh, with the Barossa, we've gone for a more contemporary uh, style of Shiraz, which is you know once again really soft on the tannins. I guess the interesting thing here is a lot of the fruit. We source for the Barossa, and it's more coming from the western side of the Barossa, which generally has a little bit more structure. But we sort of temper that with um, it's, it's, a, it's a cool thing we do when you're um, seasoning the wood. Uh, usually, they'll see they'll chop the tree down, the oak tree down, they'll cut it up, and they'll leave it out in the weather for 12 or 24 months, and that really allows the rain to fall on it and wash out any those harsh or, or bitter tannins. With the Bross and Shiraz, they're actually it's a minimum of a 36 month season, so we're really getting um, the last of those difficult tannins out of that wood. And uh, I, I think we've got yeah, a really mouthful. It's got that nice mid weight, but it's also finishing with um, just a beautifully silky smooth uh, tannin structure. Tannin still has. I'm getting a kind of a juicy, jammy kind of nature to this Shiraz, uh, but really impressive red fruit, lots of lots of vanilla. 
it's uh, it's the kind of uh, the Shiraz that I think a lot of people think about when they're they're drinking um, they're drinking Shiraz. And that that cocoa note on the the mid palate, and uh, yes, the tannin is smooth, but it's not as smooth as the portrait. Like if I'm picturing something that I do actually want to lay down, like you said, a screw cap, nice screw cap, five to ten years is certainly not an issue with this. And for twenty two bucks, definitely something to be fun to see how it evolves. Um, yeah, this is tasty wine. I mean, there's only a two, in in Ontario, there's only a two dollar price difference between this and and, and portrait. Um, it's it's two dollars well spent, definitely. And if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, coming out again. Uh, it came out in June, and yep. then I think it's coming out again in two uh, weeks in November. Yep. So it will be available again. Sorry, on November fourteenth. Yes. <laughs> but it was yeah. it was out in June, so it's a it's the second time that it's it's going to show up in market. Yeah, uh, so it's been a, This is the the 2018 is the third release of this this the Barros and Shiraz, and it's a. It's been a, a real success for us in the market too, uh, especially domestically. It's it's been an amazing wine, an amazing journey for us to go on with this wine. So you've talked you, you've talked to us a little bit about the Barossa, but there's there's something about uh, the Barossa soils that uh, that make all this really really special. I was kind of looking through the the document that was uh, that was sent over to us uh, to give us a little bit of uh, of a look at um, uh, a P- Peter Lehman wines. I have to be honest. I glossed over it because I just wanted to ask you questions about it. <laughs> so, what is it about the the soils that are that are special, also in the Barossa? I guess the the Barossa and the soil, which is still something I'll probably spend the rest of my life getting my head around. It's just the it's so geologically complex. So you've got some sides you've got deep sands, and they'll go down you know ten fifteen meters, just pure sand, and then we move into so what we call the the Biscay clays, which are a, a solid clay. And I guess what that means, each one of these soils and each area performs a little bit differently each, each vintage. And, um, you know, so in those wetter years, those sandier soils, so those really free-draining soils, really produce a, a really nice balanced wine. Uh, if we get a nice wet spring but it dries out, you find those more clay clay soils, those those vines are able to hang on a little bit longer and really give us um, the result we want. But uh, you'll see um, from vintage to vintage, you'll see slight, uh, you will see the variations in the soil types and in the different uh, elevation in the Barossa. So we sort of start around probably 40, 40 metres roughly, I guess, uh, down at Lindoff, which is uh, closest to Adelaide and closest to the ocean. And then we swing around up into uh, the top of Barossa or into Eden, we up and get around that four 400 metres there. So uh, even with the, the different vintages, we're able to sort of hunt around the Barossa and really um, get get some parcels of fruit that are just uh, really bang on and really singing. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's part of the challenge of making wine in the Barossa. You never quite know where the best parcels of fruit are, are going to come from uh, until it's all, all finished, basically. Okay, it's got to be Australia's nice though to no, have. It's, oh, it's got to be I'll nice. Let you go, Andre, because I had another question about uh, about things. But go ahead. I'm gonna oh, I was just going to say, like, it's, it's got to be nice to have, um, you know, a large, you know, a large, you know, group of growers to be able to work with. That you know, every year, you know, you're getting a different batch, and and you know, it's, it's the best part about wine is that unpredictable element, and having a good winemaker to you know work with what's given to them as opposed to cooking to a recipe. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's and you know that's for me. That's yeah. It's, it's not much. If it was easy, everyone would do it. So each year's 
definitely got its own challenges, but we're, we're as a winery, we're really well set up to, to manage those uh, challenges each year. Uh, it's it's just amazing, like, and you, you really don't know until the very end when you sit down and you taste these passes of wine, well, what what each vintage has done to those those sub regions and those to those vineyards. So that's just a, a bit of a passion of mine, and I just really love seeing those differences. And that's sort of what gets the winemakers out of bed in the morning, just to just to see what's what's happening and how the weather and how the different soil and the different structures really impacted that wine throughout the the growing season and through vinification. Now, Australia is really known for uh, having some really old vines. And what, what's the what's the the oldest vines you have uh, access to? And uh, yeah, let's just go with that. Yeah, so we've got uh, at the moment uh, the oldest vines we have in the winery are from were planted in eighteen eighty five. So what are we getting there? That's yeah. So we're up very old there and then we have another couple of parcels around uh 1893 1900 so i guess and that comes back to i'm not sure if you guys are across it but it all comes down to basically uh phylloxera uh phylloxera never really made its way to south australia which for those that don't know it's a it's a vine mite that kills the vine and it's uh, decimated quite a few wine regions over the years and killed um many acres of vineyards that never actually uh, made its way to the Barossa. So these uh, old old vines have just uh, kept on keeping on. Yeah, that uh, phylloxera is uh, North America's great gift to the wine world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess maybe uh, a question I have is, is when, you're, when you're dealing with vines that are that, are that old, you know, I, do they still produce much fruit? Yeah, definitely. That you know, they're very wise. Those vines, they'll they're very consistent. They'll get through very hot spells. You know, they've seen hot spells. They've seen frost. They've seen cold. They're very tough. They're very resilient, and they'll always just throw a crop and they'll they'll ripen it each each year. Like they're they're beautiful. They they're, they're quite wise, and they'll only throw a crop that they can ripen, and they are relatively consistent each year. Obviously, they've got roots, especially on those sandier sites that go all the way down. So. They're sort of anchored down. They'll get through um, some of those tougher weather periods uh, much better than, say, a twenty or thirty-year-old vineyard or younger. And, so, how many and tons what, per acre what, will you? How many? How many tons per acre will you get off? Uh, like a, you know, a hundred and I guess by my math, like a hundred and forty, hundred and fifty-year-old uh, vine. Yeah, you're you're still looking at uh, the yields are, I guess, by industry standards, are quite low. They're, they're at that, that one to two ton, maybe two and a half ton per per acre. Oh, cool! Yeah. So, what what are the vines like? Is it is it a mix of fruits that seem to last that long, or or does Cab seem to go over it, or Shiraz? Uh, what is what are the vines that usually make it to that hundred and forty five year old? So, mainly at this stage, they're uh, generally Shiraz is is the most common. There's a a few little pockets around of Grenache as well floating around that are really starting at that hundred year old plus um, <laughs> sort of time. So, Andre, you were just uh, texting me because uh, Nigel doesn't know we text back and forth. Uh... Yeah, to make sure that we don't sound like idiots with asking questions. But, uh, my, yes, my final tasting note on the Barros and Shiraz is it's yummy. Yeah. That's a technical term up here. And uh, your next message is you're looking forward to the cab. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm gonna crack it. There we go. Ah, just... And, you know, and the, it's a, they, it's so a they, they kind of screw cap. It's more that Lux cap. The Lux so cap. Did, I uh, love the look. I love the look and the feel of the Lux Stelvins. It's just 
you know, it's, I just like that uh, they've found a way to kind of make the screw caps look and feel a little nicer, even though it's not a huge difference. I, I'm sure functionally it's the exact same as the old school, less glamorous screw caps, but they definitely look nicer. Yeah, no, exactly. There, um, yeah, functionally they work just as just as well as the, the regular screw cap. They're a little bit trickier to apply for the bottling lines, but you yeah, know, there's definitely a, a little bit more premium look to them. So, no, we're happy with the with the uh, yeah the Stelvin Lux, no, definitely. I really like the, the like the look of it. Why was the uh, why did you do put the cab under that and uh, the other two Shirazes under the regular, or was it not really your choice? Uh, we're, we're just sort of working through making sure that we're because obviously the application is quite different from the regular Stelvin to the Stelvin Lux. So we're just trialing it in a few markets and making sure that uh, there's no nasty surprises, which we haven't found out as yet. So they've been performing very well. So we're we're happy with the, the Stelvin. And, Lux, so. and and let me let me make a, a guess um, as well. Maybe not as 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 PR'd where it's just you just ordered a crap ton of the old ones and you don't want them to go to waste before you switch to the new ones. I don't want to give away my secrets here. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's part of wine making. Always trying new things. Always try to make a, a bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a tricky thing when you when you have branded when you have branded Stelvin anything like it's got your logo on the top. It's not like you can sell it to sell it to someone else to use if you've got a surplus of them. You got it. Don't want anything to go to waste. Even even in a large winery, money is money. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, this cab does not disappoint, Andre. Not not in the least. Uh, yeah, I got a big smile on my face. It's too bad that we're doing this. That we're an audio only. Only a podcast because, um, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, that's the bomb.com. This is, uh, this is juicy, lots of dark fruit, and it's, uh, it's got like mocha backs everything. There's pepper and mocha, raspberry, mocha, just everything seems that I, that I'm tasting always ends with that, that mocha on the finish, and it's really, really lovely. But the way that, the way that you manage the, the tan, Nigel, like it's, like your your wines that we've tasted so far are the perfect gateway to convince someone to spend that little bit more money to maybe work their way up to you know sp- spending fifty sixty dollars on something to put into a cellar because these are wines that um you know they're ready to go the tannin on this is is soft I'm getting like a tiny bit of a grip on the back of my tongue like I might let this decant for a half hour or hour before serving it but I mean if you open it. And serve it immediately. It's um, it's not going to disappoint. If anything, it'll just be one of those things where your first sip will be like, "Yep, yeah, that that's pretty good." But you know, a half hour later, when you get to the second pour, it's just like, "Oh wait, is this still the same wine?" Yeah, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm really awesome. liking the. Uh, I, I I think by the fourth sip, that's where the tannin grip kind of hits you, Andre. The, the nose on it, though, is... So, I'm, I'm just taking... It doesn't look like there's an LCBO release date for this, but the last vintage that rolled through in December of last year was 1775 If this comes in anywhere close to 20 bucks, that is over-delivering on price. Yeah, great. I guess um, uh, winemakers here, we sort of hanging our hat on Shiraz, and, uh, which gave us a little bit of freedom with the Cabernet, I guess. So, we're... <laughs> a lot of hard work and yeah, making sure we get that tannin structure right making sure we get that flavor profile 
just absolutely on point. And I think uh, we've, we've, well, just personally, I think the, the guys, the team have done a really great job here on just hitting that brief. So, as we said, it's got the, it does have tannin structure there, but it's the tannins are, are ripe and well-rounded, so uh, this is, it's not edgy at all, and the, and the acid is uh, well-balanced as well. What I also think you've done is you've hidden the 14.5% alcohol in there because you really don't pick it up. So this is one of those dangerous wines where you're on your third glass and wondering <laughs> why the room is spinning. And you're putting your leg down, uh, and you're like, uh, "Why? Why is the the room spinning?" spinning? <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a look once again at, on the on the website. So in in Australia, this is a, a twenty five dollar uh, twenty five dollar a bottle wine. So you know, even if that comes anywhere near that in Canada, I know our dollars are pretty close to parity. Close. Um, yeah, this is wow. This is a this is a perfect way to help build a wine cellar as well. 25 bucks, that's no questions asked for me. This is delicious cap soap. Your turn, Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess what, what we're really looking for, I guess the Barossa, we are uh, probably a, a warmer wine region there. So really focus on getting those those black, black fruits, black olive flavor in there and just trying to making sure we drive out the last of those that any but that bell pepper or, or what we call capsicum in Australia. <laughs> so just making sure that they, they are a ripe style and we really get those ripe tannin structure, so, uh, so, which we find them um, really nice and round, especially if you start comparing them to um, uh, Cabernets grown in, I guess, a, a cooler climate. They generally have a, that, that, uh, a stelia acid background uh, backbone and they will take that more time to settle down with that tendon structure so we've really uh, worked hard on getting something that's uh, really right to go so the consumer can take it home and uh, they can they can drink it that night or that week over the next week or month or also has it has that mid-weight uh, mid-pellet weight and it does have that tendon structure there where it will reward um, some cellaring as well so yeah no, we're really really proud of the wine we're producing so I, I know that you, as you said, the climate's quite warm, um, and and as you said, uh, you know the Barossa's, Barossa is Shiraz country. How hard is the the fight to keep that acid in the Cab Sauve? Uh, look, we've been doing a lot of work with with uh, Cabernet, particularly around different clones of Cabernet and how we we manage them in the vineyard. I guess. I guess one of the traps of having so much success with Shiraz is you go, well, we know how to. Uh, grow grapes because we can grow great Shiraz and you just sort of pick up everything you know about Shiraz and try and uh, treat Cabernet the same. So probably last four or five years we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of work with uh, different clones and really just making sure we're treating those vines um, in the best way that to get the results that we want, which is not necessarily the same way we treat uh, Shiraz. So Shiraz seems to... Um, the more disrespect you, you give Shiraz, the, the the better quality you get. With uh, Cabernet, you do need to look after it a little bit more in the Barossa. Now, I don't know if you'll agree with this this statement, but I've I've talked to a, a few Australian winemakers in my time, and while they say that Shiraz is you know quote unquote the grape of Australia, they believe that they do a better job with Cabernet. Oh, con- con- controversial statement, Michael. I'm just asking. Look, 
I think in in the Barossa we hang our hat on Shiraz, and I think uh, nobody in the world. Uh, I think I listened to a podcast that you were talking about um, Ontario and how what they want to hang, what great variety they want to hang their hat on, and I think uh, in the Barossa we're very comfortable with uh, hanging our hat on the quality of our Shiraz. So I think uh, the Australian uh, wine industry built its reputation around Shiraz, and I think uh, it has a long and bright future. Okay, well, okay, well, now that I know that you've you've checked out the podcast, any chance that you'll start working with uh, Cabernet Franc? <laughs> we do have a little bit of Cabernet Franc uh, coming in from one of our very good growers, and it's it's always something we're still. We, uh, as you said, it's, it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of time to really truly understand and get in the right spot and get it, get the viticulture right and get the winemaking right. And uh, where, to be honest, we're not there with Cab Franc at the moment. So, um, we're, we're, I'd, I'd love to see uh, some more varieties, just like Cab Franc, Melbeck, and uh, Melbeck. We're starting to see a little bit of success with, and uh, you actually see this Barossa. Uh, 2018 may have had a little bit of Melbeck snuck in as well. Okay. Uh, the Cab Franc, uh, we're, we're still a little bit away from that, but that that gives uh, the Ontario guys a good opportunity to jump in and make it their own. So mm-hmm. I, I think one question I, I want to ask is, um, I, I think one of the problems with Australian wine and Australian Shiraz in Ontario is, uh, you know, I won't even mince words, it's yellowtail on the market with uh, the off-dry wine. What do you want to say to the Canadian market who have that perception of Shiraz as being this, you know, sort of sweet and alcoholic, uh, alcoholic wine where, you know, the reality is when you are in competent hands that you can make a really good entry level uh, Shiraz to get people to do that. What, like, what do you want to say to the Ontarian market to tell them to get into a bottle of Shiraz? Sure. Like I guess the the success of Yellow Tail has has been amazing, and it, it penetrated really deeply into the market. But I just urge consumers: there's uh, more. There's more to. While that's a very good style, there's there's a lot of different styles of Shiraz, and uh, please get in there and try a few other Australian Shiraz, and you I think you'll all be pleasantly supplied, surprised at the uh, the depth and complexity of, of of these wines. And especially recently, there's winemakers are doing some. Uh, yeah, you know, never resting on their laurels. They're always looking to improve and make it make a better wine. So even if you haven't tried an Australian Shiraz in say five years, uh, definitely uh, it's probably worth a revisit. Definitely, Andre, I'm I'm absolutely loving this cab though. That's why I asked the question about about the cab because uh, it's like the Shiraz. It's it's nice. No offense, Nigel. I've been there before. These things are really lovely. But that cab you've made is is I I just I keep making more and more notes about it, and really enjoying it. And I could see that lying down for a decade or more. And as Andre said about about building up a cellar, that would be you know for twenty two dollars if that's what it comes into Ontario at, uh, it would be a, a perfect six bottle buy and just lie it down and try it every two years just to see where it's going. I think you'd be thrilled with that wine. And and Michael, I've actually gone back to the Shiraz. The Cabernet Sauvignon is is wonderful, as you said, but um, the Barossan Shiraz is just delivering this intensity that doesn't make it feel like a twenty two dollar bottle of wine. Um, it, it's yeah, this is um, this is textbook of what you expect from a well made red well made red wine from anywhere on the planet. Got good acid, soft tannin, and just crazy intensity out of the nose like for 22 bucks it's packing a punch 
Yeah, and that's yeah, as a wine making team, we work really hard on that. We work close with the growers. We're making sure they're as efficient as they can be uh, in the winery. We're working hard to, you know, we're not just there for show. We're, we're there for go a little bit, making sure we're making really uh, great decisions in the winery just to really make sure what we're sort of, you know, and as you sort of referred to earlier with Yellowtail, we just really want to make sure we're uh, really giving an amazing value for money at that at those um, higher price points, which I think we're sort of hitting, hitting the mark with these, I think. At, at those prices that you're seeing them in market, I think they're they're really great value. So, uh, Nigel, um, in Canada, well, the, the weather is completely whack. First off, thank you for sending us a little bit of your Australian summer. It was 19 degrees today. Uh, but yesterday, Michael and I recorded a, a socially distanced podcast on my patio where it was about 2 degrees. Um <laughs> Have you have you hit bud break? Like I'm just I'm I'm still like I still have a hard time wrapping my head around the the timelines of the wine growing season in the southern hemisphere. Have you hit bud break yet? Like or, or how are things looking for? I know it's way definitely way too early to talk about yields and quality of wine from the 2021 vintage, but uh, like where are the vineyards at in you know the the first week of November in uh, Australia? Yeah, sure. So um, we're we're. We're right through bud burst now. We're probably going to start to look flowering over the next couple of weeks. Uh, is where we're up to. We've had probably we've had we rely heavily on winter rainfalls to really give us a good um, soil moisture profile, and so we've had a, a good or a, a decent, I guess, winter this year. We've probably had 50 mils more rain already than say last year, I believe. So uh, we're. Last year was pretty pretty tough vintage for us as far as rainfall went. Uh, this year we're looking the the vineyards as you're driving around the Barossa, it just looks absolutely picture at the moment. So I guess your cane lengths are probably 30, 40, maybe 30, 40 centimetres long, and uh, everything's really looking really healthy at the moment. So we're really looking forward to some nice weather during flowering coming up, which we got hit pretty hard last year with uh, wind. Uh, during flowering, so probably yields were down 40 50%. So we're sort of hoping uh, we get a little bit nicer weather in the next couple of weeks. Well, the weather you have coming up in the next couple of weeks, even if it rains, is going to be better than what we're getting in Ontario. I think it's uh, probably most of the maximums around 24 at the moment. Uh, rub it so, in. Yeah, it's a nice time. No, no, Andre, Andre, we're going we're gonna to see about 15, 16 degrees for the next three days, and then I did the single digits. So uh, uh <laughs> we've got some nice weather coming and then uh we're going to be really kind of wishing we were where nigel was well as ned stark has said many times in game of thrones winter is coming winter is coming <laughs> nigel we'd like to thank you very much for uh for joining us today on the podcast for uh for sharing your wines and your knowledge with us um, these were fantastic. I think Andre is going to be drinking the Shiraz for the rest of the night, and I'm going to be digging into this uh, this cab with my uh, my Salisbury steak. You're eating Salisbury right. steak like out of a microwave? No, I'm making it. Oh my god! I have so many. I usually make when we have a podcast. I usually do egg roll in a bowl. Tonight, I decided to do a little bit different. I have so many questions about like what is Salisbury steak, but I think I don't think we need to put Nigel through that. It's just it's just basically a hamburger with gravy. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you so much, Nigel. It's um, I, I always appreciate. I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of rediscovering Australian wine 
as I sort of alluded to from previous bad experiences with it. So it's always a pleasure to get a chance to have the baseline on, you know, a wine that I can get my hands on when I'm craving it and when I want to tell other people, no, 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 no. This is what Australia wine's supposed to taste like. So thank you very much for uh, for going through this with us. Uh, it's been uh, great to spend a bit of time and hopefully I can get back to Canada um, next year or the year after once the travel restrictions ease up a little bit for us. I'll tell you what, if that great. happens, we'll uh, get together and do one face-to-face so we can uh, maybe do a stump the chump with you and, and go through some Ontario wines with you since, uh, as I said, I notice you've listened to the podcast. You've done your homework. Perfect. Uh, we'll lock it in. Perfect. That'd be great. And Andre can burn a chicken for you. Oh, s- screw you, Michael. <laughs> Salisbury steak. Like, seriously, Salisbury steak? Like, what? I mean, Salisbury it's... steak's a freaking joke from South Park. Come on. No. Salisbury steak. Every so often, probably every six months, I just get the hankering to make it because another recipe shows up in my inbox and I'm like, sure, I'll try it again. And this one, I, I made the patties early and I got all, all, all the uh, all the ingredients ready to go and uh you know and it's going to go great with this cab it's going to go great with this cab i just i love that the cuisine that I, when you cook it's just the height of sophistication do you know what it's uh basically a hamburger with gravy okay you know what let's face it that doesn't sound like the worst thing on the planet no all all you need is some mashed potatoes or some french fries to go with that bad boy and you're ready to go you know what uh, like just to reflect on the podcast we just did it's not blowing smoke like um dan durand we're good enough to connect us with the winemaker but we're not being paid to promote these wines or, or pitch these wines like we're genuinely excited about the wines you and i actually had a discussion off the air and hopefully the people at dan durand listen to this because i certainly wouldn't want to say it to the face of the the winemaker but we tasted the barros and shiraz earlier this year and we were both underwhelmed yeah, I didn't. I didn't think it was very good. I I think you uh, didn't score it at all. I gave it uh, a three plus, and now it is. It's like I guess it just needed, uh, you know, three, four, five months in bottle to you know fully integrate. I Maybe mean, we tasted it too early in its its lifespan. I I stand by for twenty two bucks. Um, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. If someone slipped a bottle of that in my stocking for Christmas, because we're getting to that time of year, uh, it would be a very nice gift and. If you're someone like me who has had bad experiences with Aussie Shiraz, uh, you know, thank you, large brand with the yellow label on it that has sort of destroyed the perception of Australian wine on the market. That um, has previously been mentioned on the podcast. I just don't need to say their name again. I don't want to give them any more free press. Um, you know, this is a great way to kind of rediscover, not kind of, it's a great way, like full stop, it's a great way to rediscover Shiraz and understand why the Barossa Valley was famous in the first place. And as I said again, the uh, the cab is, I don't know, I just keep going back to it. I taste the Shiraz, and I'm like, yeah, it's good Shiraz. It's much, much better than it was, you know, back in, in May. But this cab is just, I really like this wine full stop. Oh, and Henry uh, agrees with you. I, I like when Henry agrees with me. <laughs> um, so anyways... Uh, Andre Pru. I'm Andre Pru. That's who I am. Um, you could find me at andrewinereview.ca. You can follow me on social media as at Andre Wine Review. Um, who, who, who the f*** are you? 
Uh, well, uh, I am not the one putting any uh, coin in the swear jar this time. It looks like it's going to you. I know that we are uh, asking people to check out uh, Psalm Blinders, which is a, a card game, and you will hear all about it next week. Uh, but I'm Michael Pincus of Michael Pincus Wine Review. Dot com. And remember, uh, ch- even though we are, uh, we have become corporate shills for Psalm, the game is, is fun. Even freezing our balls off on the patio, it's a yes, lot of it fun. Was. It'll make a really great stocking stuffer for the wine lover. It's a great way to share your love of wine with, um, you know, maybe your family members who like wine but don't know how to verbalize it. You'll hear all about it next week. But you can always check out Patreon. Another great Christmas gift would be the gift of Michael and I. Correct. Oh God, would that be a yeah? Just we'll we'll show up in your stocking if you uh, make a commitment to um, sponsor this podcast for six months. We will do a tasting, a guided tasting with you and a few people. We'll pick out the wines. It will send them right to your house, and we will we will you'll, you'll get to be a part of this podcast, but privately. You'll get to watch and, Michael and, and I insult if, each other. If it's a Christmas gift, uh, we'll actually send you a little picture of us waving at you. Uh, and and telling you that uh, that that's what you're giving your your guest your gift giver. Oh your God, we're setting the bar high. We're setting the bar high. I know. Uh, anyways, okay. I think I think I think we've mentioned everything we need to. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, guess so, it, it, I guess it, it, if it, if it hasn't come across, um, you know, I don't think we're we're desperate, but it it doesn't cost us a lot of money to maintain the podcast, but it does cost a few dollars. So anyone who takes the time to support us, we very much appreciate it. We, we you know, I don't we don't want to sound like Lindsey Graham. Give us money. We need money. They're killing us out there. They're killing us out there. Oh, God. All right. Okay, take it away, Michael. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Adam Duran.